Welcome to Tech Deciphered. We bring you the entrepreneur and investor views on big tech, VC, and startup news, opinion pieces, and research. We decipher their meaning and add inside knowledge and context. We also share our insights and experience with you, with unique nuggets and lessons that we learned the hard way. No smoke and mirrors, no BS. Being nerds, we also discuss gadgets and pop culture news. Hi, I'm your co-host Nuno Gonçalves Pedro, entrepreneur and venture capitalist, co-founder and managing partner at Chameleon and Strive Capital. And I am your co-host, Bertrand Schmidt, entrepreneur in residence at Red River West, co-founder of App Annie. We have both been in tech for almost 25 years. Nuno is based in Silicon Valley, while I am based in the greater Seattle area, having previously worked and lived in Europe and Asia. With Tech Deciphered, discover how the best entrepreneurs pitch, how investors think, and what are the deep trends underlying the tech industry. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Subscribe, give us five stars, and or leave a review on Apple Podcasts app or your favorite app. This will help other people discover Tech Deciphered. Welcome to episode 47 of Tech Deciphered. This will be the first episode in a series of two episodes about day zero as a founder. So basically, we will talk in episode 47 about what is day zero as a founder. We will talk about when is it a good time to start a business, how to validate your startup ideas, and of course, We'll go around three key things, product, market, and team. And that will be all for episode 47. You will hear more in our episode 48 about culture, about structure, legal, and about second time founders. You know. First things first. <laughs> first things first. So first, first yeah. things first. What is day zero? Day zero is basically to us when you're really starting your company. You have an idea, you may have done a little bit of market research, you've sought through a few things, but you're about to go and embark on this journey of having a startup or a company of some sort. So the first important thing is, what are you doing? What is it you're going to do the company on? Is it a services company? Is it a product company? Is it something that you've done before? We're going to start a little bit today in this episode talking about first-time founders. Later on, we'll talk about the differences between second-time founders and first-time founders. So most of the episode today and then part of the episode next time will focus a lot on first-time founders. But at least you have to have a notion of product or service. What is it that I'm supplying to the market? Second, what is the market? What market am I going to operate in? Third... What is the team? And normally the team at uh, day zero is you and potentially co-founders. It might be you by yourself or if you're a single founder or a solopreneur, as we call it. So what do you do first? The first things you need to do is to understand what sort of market are you going to act on? What products or services are you going to manifest in that market? And what's the ongoing team into this problem, into this company? That's your sort of effective day zero start if you don't have these things and you're like, oh, I just have an idea for a startup, that's cool, but it's not something you can go and raise money on. It's not something you can go and do anything on. You have to at least go to a stage where you have a plan, where you have a potential co-founding team, where you have a market that you're going to operate on. 
By the way, not all businesses are venture-backable or not, and that might be something we come back to. And I will say another point is also around, are you still working another job? Are you doing this part-time uh, during your nights and weekends? Or have you resigned from your previous job and moved full-time on this idea? So that's always a big question. I will say a lot of people, you wonder if they are serious enough when they have been on something for many, many months or years and they are still not full-time on it. They still have their previous job. So DZO for me often come when you have made that real life decision to stop what you are doing and be really focused on this new venture. What's your take, Nino? Do you need to have taken a clear break? I understand what you mean by it. I mean, if you aren't about to create a company itself, an entity will come back to structure later on. If you're not really putting any resources at the table that are significant, that for me is the bar. So day zero, you have to put some resources at the table, some sort of cash, your time allocation, about to create that entity or you are creating that entity. I'm not so strong about the full time or not, but there has to be a significant part of your time focused on this. To your point, I mean, if you're not full-time, if you're not just full-time, then if that's been going for a while, if you've been not full-time for a long time, then there's something wrong. Either you think you're doing a venture-backable business, but actually nobody's giving you money, or you're not fully in and you're not all hands on the project and people don't recognize that type of focus on the startup. So there's something then fundamentally wrong. So in general, it would be good that people are full-time. In general, it's good that at least the main founder of the firm says, I am full-time. I am working on this full-time. The other co-founders might not all be full-time, but at least one person, the CEO, ideally, would be full-time. As I said, I'm not as True. specific on that for the day zero definition, but probably would be a good manifestation at least a couple of months in that the person is full-time. I think because we all might have ideas, we all might try some stuff on the side, look into something, but I just feel that's pre-day zero and the day zero is more clear mark that something different is happening right now. I think even at this one person that is either full-time or spending an incredible amount of time is a clear necessity. Starting an entity is another one. And starting to have a clear idea about the product on the market. And you might change over time, just to be clear. That is always true. You might decide to pivot three months, six months, 12 months, two, three years, four years after the fact. That, that happens. But having a clear starting point helps you clarify things and try to move toward this goal. I think another thing I like to see is a clear timetable. I think in the past, it has helped me when I started businesses to give myself clear timetable. So I give myself six months, 12 months, 18 months to reach a specific milestones so that I can reassess. And I think it's quite critical because you can get lost pretty easily in your ideas and exploring stuff and a never-ending quest of digging some market or optimizing a product and never launching it. So I think having a clear timetable is a very important thing. And probably also starting to get visibility on, a, are you going to do this alone or are you bringing co-founders for the ride? What is it not? 
I think if you're at idea stage, very high level, you haven't done much research in any specific market or product. If you don't have at least this notion that you're going to create an entity and that you're going to create a growing concern, a company, then I don't think it stays here. And this could apply not only to first-time founders, but also to second or third-time founders, right? Some people, when they're about to go on their second or third journey, they take some time to look at a bunch of things, talk to people, pick their brains, etc. They're not at day zero of anything. They'll only be at day zero the day they say, I'm going to do this. Now I'm going to do this. Okay. I've decided this is the space I want to act in. Okay. And there still might be some pieces to flesh out, but that decision of this is now going to be my pursuit is for me a core characteristic of the day zero. We see a lot of people that prepare pitch decks and they're like, oh, I'm a first time founder. I've prepared this pitch deck. This is an idea I have. That's also not day zero. <laughs> so it's like, okay, do you have an entity you're about to create? Do you have a clarity? And have you done proper research on the market sizing? Or is this just a very high level pitch deck with some bullet points that you put together because you so fancy? Uh, to, to the final point, I would say on what is it and what it's not, not everything is venture backable. Not everything is tech. Not everything is a company that necessarily scales and is product-led. You could have an idea for a restaurant or you could have an idea for a services company, which by the way, normally are not super mega venture investable businesses, but the process is still the same. The process of defining what is my market, what is the product I'm going to offer to that market, or where is the service line that I'm going to offer to this market? What am I supplying for? What is the team that's going to be involved in building this up is the same. It's exactly the same, right? It just happens to happen in a world that may not be a fundamentally tech-enabled product yeah, and one of the big differences would be how much money to, you need to start the business and you need to keep investing from especially external sources to keep the business growing. That would be a big difference, um, obviously, between a service business as well as a product business. And of course, you can also have product businesses that are not VC-backable or yourself make a decision that you don't want to keep looking for additional external financing during the journey of your business. Typically, one thing I've learned is that it really depends on your market and industry. If it's uh, extremely fast-moving, if there is a lot of global competition, at some point, just being on your own might not be enough, and you might need to accelerate through external backing, or you will get be left behind, basically. So moving maybe to when is it a good time to start? Is it top of the market or bottom of the market? So if, is it in a good market that you should start a company or in a really poor market you should start a company? That's always a question. I would say historically, it looks like that extremely, extremely good business have been started at bottom of market. There might be a lot of explanations for that. If you're at bottom of market, you have to scrap by, you have to be efficient. You might... Also be forced <laughs> into the opportunity of starting a business because you couldn't find a job, you have been let go. It has happened to a lot of very good founders. So in a way, that's a, the mother of all opportunities when you are forced to do something by yourself because you cannot find a job. So that's all the positive for starting in the bottom of market. And let's remember, Microsoft, Apple were not started in very good markets. So some of our big BMOs were not started at great times. Airbnb, I think the whole of BAT, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent also, were not started at a particularly amazing time. Or they started around the end of the bubble, but then, you know, when they actually need to raise money, <laughs> they were in the middle of the, a nuclear war type thing or <laughs> a nuclear situation for most investors. So yeah, it's to your point, it's, it's the mother of all opportunities. But 
it's very difficult to raise money as well during those times. So it's a little bit like a two-edged sword. If you're raising on a high, it's maybe easier for you to raise money. But then to your point, you won't have to make very difficult strategic decisions because it will be easier for you to raise money. You won't make the tough calls. But also in bad times, things cost less. It might be easier to get access to compute capacity. It might be easier to hire people cheaply or people you would never have been able to hire before. Supply chain might be easier. You might get some advertising on the chip. So it might come with less money, but you might need less money as well. On the top of the market, I believe it can be dangerous for sure, because if you raise a lot, good for you. But if you spend a lot, there would be a payback time if it was not necessary to run the business. Either a payback in terms of dilution or an issue in terms of next financing where your valuation needs to increase significantly and it's becoming suddenly hard to do, especially if you raise on a high and have to raise again 18 months, two years after, and suddenly the markets are not in the same situation. That's probably the most difficult situation. And that's why I'm always trying to advise people to not push too hard on valuation, get something that's market, that's reasonable. And even that would be difficult if you are on top of market in terms of valuation that you have to live for. But if you push for um, the highest valuation, and sometimes you might get it, get lucky, it can be a very dangerous place. In terms of age, when should you start a company? There's a lot of debate around that as well. Everyone says it seems like consumer companies should be started as young as you can. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and B2B companies should be started as old as you have the energy to go and do a startup. I'm not quite sure that's fully true, although we do see a pattern that B2B companies seem to do better when founded by older founders. We've discussed some of this research in the past in one of the previous episodes. And sometimes consumer seems to be done better by younger founders. And actually, and sometimes actually even the first time founders rather than a second time founder doing that. That said, to be honest, I'm not sure. I feel when you're younger in your career, you have less to lose. And so you can probably live on ramen a little bit more easily than if you've have a family and you've been working for Google and getting paid a million dollars a year and it's more difficult for you to make that transition to getting underpaid as a founder. But at the same time, sometimes the arc that you have professionally and the career that you've had from when you were young until that moment where you decide to finally do that startup is actually what will allow you to be a better entrepreneur and allow you to do less mistakes, even if you're a first-time founder. So I don't have a very strong view. Maybe enterprise software is a place where older is maybe better, but again, there's exceptions to everything uh, we just talked about. Personally, I started my first B2B business before graduating from my engineering school in France. So I must have been around uh, 21. It was not easy <laughs> to start like this. I had to learn quite a bit. On the go, I must say it was an amazing learning experience. It was not successful as a first startup, but it was a huge learning and gave me the taste and the love for entrepreneurship. So even if I might not work out, it might still be a huge valuable learning opportunity. But of course, if it doesn't work, it has a cost. It's early in your career. You are not getting paid much as a startup entrepreneur. You might actually put some the little money you have in the business like I did. So it might not be easy financially to be able to afford to do that. And there are stuff you might be able to learn in some other uh, businesses early on. I would tend to agree from the perspective that B2C, you might want to go early because 
you yourself might see trends nobody else is seeing because you are quite young. It's a, it's a new trend affecting new uh, younger generation. And for a lot of B2C stuff, it's often starting with younger people and then building its way up uh, to older generations. So I can certainly see some logic. Or in B2B, you can learn some ropes of businesses and then go on your own after a few years. Camille is my fourth company. So I've done two VC firms and I've done two tech companies. The first tech company that I did was actually, think of it as a business process outsourcing play for IT in effect, right? So it was a services company at its base. Uh, the idea was to at some point develop product, but I started that just out of college. But I'd been working for three years when I got out of college. So I had been working for three years, got out of college, decided to do this company. And honestly, a lot of lessons learned there. I've mentioned it in other podcasts, so I probably won't be late on it, but it was too early for me. I was still a bit obsessed about learning and learning rapidly. And I had the feeling that although I was learning as a founder, I wasn't learning in a very structured manner, right? I wasn't learning with people that could mentor me in the right way. And a couple of other realities around the company led us to close down the company. Actually, the company became profitable, which is a bit shocking. The company was profitable and then we could have continued scaling it, but we decided to close it down. My second was Strive Capital, which is a VC firm and was a very non-scalable VC is always rarely scalable, right? It takes a lot for you to scale a VC firm beyond 10 people, 20 people, et cetera, as an activity. But I feel that was sort of a work of love. And I started Strive around, so I must have been 30, 33 when I started uh, Strive. So I'd been working for a long time. As I said, I started working when I was very young. For me, it felt like I was easily halfway through my career. For others, it would feel like I was very early still in my career. But I knew a lot. I, there was a lot of things to learn. There was a little bit of this jump into the abyss that characterizes being an entrepreneur that was particularly true about Strive. I don't think it was as true about Dreamlink, which was my first company. And in, in Strive, it was the fact that I was giving up a salary. I was a McKinsey partner before then. I was earning well. I was doing well. And I have to leave that behind. I have to go earn very little money. So I did do that choice. I did do that choice of moving from really well-paying very stable, you have assistants, you have nice offices, and all of a sudden you're starting everything from scratch. If I knew what I know today, I'm not sure I would have gone through that because it was a very painful process, but it changed my life. And now I wouldn't want it any other way. So it changed my life. A posteriori, it sort of defined my life. I did start a tech company in between where I was non-exec. The company pivoted eventually and I ended up stopping involved fully with the company. It went into a very different direction than the one I wanted to potentially take it on. So I, I stopped being involved. So that one I won't even count. It was almost like a side gig. It was like Peter Thiel in one of his 10th side gig type thing. And then the last one is Chameleon, which is the evolution of Strive. It's sort of the next level of Strive. And again, it was a very thoughtful decision. It was like, am I really going to do this again, right? A new VC firm, another fund. It was clear that this is what I needed to do. So there was no doubt in my mind. And I learned a lot from Strive. I learned a lot on things that we should have done differently on how to create differentiation in the market and how best serve entrepreneurs, how to fundraise better. Still learning a lot on the fundraising side, to be very honest with you. It's a very difficult activity of a venture capitalist. But that, I think, it's a little bit my, I call it hopefully my opus dei or my magnum opus, right? Opus dei work of God or my magnum opus, my best work all of all time, right? So hopefully it will be the case. We will see. But it's certainly applying everything that I know from before, from the work I've done, from the startups I started before. And it was a very distinct decision to the point where I'm now saying, I'm not sure I'm employable anymore. And I'm not sure I care. We'll see. <laughs> Hopefully I won't have to care <laughs> because that will be a good sign. <laughs>
That's always the question. Once you start to be entrepreneur, and, um, your employability might be quite different, whether you even want it <laughs> in the first place. Me, on my last entrepreneurial experience as a founder, building App Annie, now Data.ai, in 2010, 13 years ago now, it was different. It was at a stage of my life where I had built up more experience, very relevant for my business, B2B, SaaS. It was very early in SaaS, but I had this experience, in, same experience in mobile as well, in my industry. So I had experience in the business model, in the industry, in companies that were also of smaller size, 50 to 300 people companies which I think is very valuable. People who have experience in huge corporations, as you have experience, you know, it's not easy <laughs> coming from a bigger corporate. It might not train you at all. It might train you in a lot of good, interesting stuff, but it might not train you at all in the practicality of running a smaller business. So for me, actually, it was very good training ground, I felt, spending time in smaller startups, successful startups. And that's something I would advise People who are serious about a founder journey, I think that working in fast-growing startups in a field of interest to you, that can bring a lot in terms of network, business practices, understanding operational realities, learning how to deal with some segments of potential customers, learning some tricks of the business. So I could see when I build up any that I could leverage all of this. I believe that made a lot of difference with some other entrepreneurs and competitors who, who didn't have similar experience, wealth of experience in the space and were discovering bit by bit <laughs> what it means to do B2B, what it means to do global scale, what it means to compete in mobile industry. So I think that was very helpful. So that's al also always a question. Do you stick to what you know in terms of industry? Do you focus on problems you clearly understand? I believe that it can have real value, actually, to do that. At the same time, of course, there are exceptions. If you take an Elon Musk uh, starting a rocket company or car company, obviously he didn't have a significant experience there, but he had a deep interest and spent quite a lot of time digging this space before committing. Maybe to finalize this section, a lot of people think about employability and, well, if I do a startup, will I be more employable? I found there's very little pattern recognition. There's people that do startups that end up in jobs that they would have never attained by just going through normal career progression, right? Because their company gets acquired or because they have a huge skill that they develop around a specific area or they get acquired or something else. At the same time, it might be that you become too of a generalist in scaling companies, et cetera, and then it will be difficult for you to join, for example, a large corporation. So I personally wouldn't think too much about employability. I think it's more of a, do you have the passion to pursue the company? It's more that that is the positive. And employability, that discussion would come later. But maybe in a nutshell, just to end and put together this section, when is a good time to start a company? I guess anytime. <laughs> anytime is a good time to start a company. <laughs> is that the conclusion? <laughs> and there have been many examples of people uh, starting very early, being extremely successful, starting very late and being extremely successful. So in B2C, in B2B, I think that as long as you are able and willing, uh, there is ability to start a business. Switching to our next section, which is around how to validate a startup idea. How do you think through your startup idea. You have the startup idea, you've maybe looked at the market a little bit, etc. But how do you actually validate it? I think that's uh, always a big question. In a very simplistic manner, there's, there's always been this debate about are you a 
painkiller or a vitamin. Typically, especially if you take uh, typical investors, there is probably a preference for your business being a painkiller because a painkiller, you are solving something clear, acute, that people are willing to buy and to buy immediately. If you have a headache, if it's painful, you want it solved. If you're proposing a vitamin type of product, it's a different story. You need to, your market might be smaller. You need people who are thinking long-term about something potential and being careful about the, how they plan the future. It might be a much longer, tougher sell. There is no urgency. That's a very typical question. Personally, I believe painkiller is a good approach because it's a good focus. Because again, there is clarity of urgency and there is clarity of need. Obviously, you want something that is once taken, you still need more. So you, you want to be careful about a one-off type of product. But I think there is some value to think for, with, with that framework in mind. It's obviously a very simplified framework. I saw someone adding a candy on top of the choice. So painkiller, vitamin or candy. Candy, obviously, would be more for fun, for entertainment type of products. So probably more typically what you could find in B2C type of environment. And of course, you have way more detailed frameworks to validate your idea. The problem with the painkiller, vitamin, and now candy framework is most of the founders don't know. <laughs> or they get it fundamentally wrong, right? Because what happens very often is they do a market assessment and they look at the market. It might be actually even a market that they're coming from. So as we were just discussing, that they would have subject matter expertise on. They said, there's clearly this problem. I believe this is the right solution for this problem, but they don't take into account a variety of things. They don't take into account whether it's the path of least resistance for user flows. They don't take into account actual competition in the market. They grossly overestimate the size of the market, which is very common. All entrepreneurs normally overestimate the size of the market they're going in. They basically don't assess the forces of the market that they're going in properly enough. And because of that, they might end up with a vitamin, although they thought they had a painkiller, right? It's a nice to have. It's not really something I absolutely need. My experience tells me this happens actually a lot. So if you're doing a company and you're a first-time entrepreneur, and if you think you've nailed that, if you think you've nailed the market and the product assessment, go back to seeing it again because you probably haven't. The odds that you will have nailed it in design mode are almost zero. So how do you nail it? Well, you nail it by, shockingly enough, talking to potential users. And this is true of both consumer and B2B. You go and talk to potential users. You go and talk to potential customers. And I'm differentiating users from customers because users are people that use your software. Customers, someone who pays for your software, right? They're not necessarily the same. You understand that also in B2B. It might be your customer is the head of IT of a company, whereas your users, it might be his DevOps team, but the guy might actually not use your product. So figure that out. Figure out the different angles around what are the user flows that have pains attached to them that are not being addressed by products today. What would be potential solutions that you think you can come up with that would be actually distinctive in that market? And finally, how could that create a trajectory towards product market fit? I mean, we're still in design mode, to be clear. You haven't engaged with anyone beyond just figuring out market and assessment, etc. We're not in development yet, but you should figure this out before you go into that development cycle because you do need to design the product, the service, the experience, and you have to start there. A lot of user feedback, a lot of conversations. And in B2B, it's particularly important because those were likely going to be your pilot test cases, right? They're going to likely be your first customers or your customers that will define how the product will evolve in the first place. Talking to users, 
potential customers is super helpful. I think sometimes there is value to just jump in the market as long as you can build some sort of minimum viable product. As a result, you can get even more clear feedback because a lot of people have trouble to give you feedback if they cannot touch or try the product, be it physical or, or digital and sometimes slides or roadmap just doesn't cut it. So there might be value in that to jump straight in with some hopefully good ideas. Of course, you can talk around, but doing the more detailed advanced user understanding once you have something and iterate pretty quickly. But you have to be ready for that. that that's for sure. And I think speed all around is a big criteria when you are a startup. How do you organize yourself to move fast? Creating that speed early on, creating that speed to do the assessments, but also not cutting corners dramatically without actually figuring out. It's all 80-20. I mean, to be very clear, this is not a McKinsey project, right? You're not going to try and figure out a market size to the nth degree. You're not trying to figure out a waterfall way of deploying a project, right? You are going to be very agile still as you're developing stuff. So it's 80-20. It's about sort of getting that 80% right with 20% of your effort. That's basically it. That said, I've seen very shoddy work on assessment around competitive intelligence, which you can do very early on, market sizing, which you can also do very early on, uh, understanding if it's a good or bad market, the dynamics around the market. We've already mentioned that before. You can't win in a market that's crap. You just can't. You can be the best entrepreneur ever, but you can't. So having that assessment pretty well done early on is very, very, very important. And the opposite is also true. If you're riding on a market that has tremendous amount of momentum, where there are some positive dynamics around competition, that's a plus, right? Then you have a great, great tailwind. It's not just a market that's cool. I think people sometimes get confused on this. Even, to be honest, venture capitalists get confused on this sometimes. It's not like, oh, it's Gen AI, it's cool, everyone's doing Gen AI. It's like, yeah, yeah everyone's doing Gen AI. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's the key part of that sentence. <laughs> or at least everyone's saying they're doing Gen AI. And so... If that's the case, maybe that market's a little bit too occupied or you have to figure out what's your lane in that market, what is going to be distinctive in that market. But really framing that, framing why is it a tailwind or not is, is quite important. I think people don't understand enough how important it is surfing on a big trend, big underlying trend that's gathering momentum and growing up and having a positive impact. And ideally, you sit before others, before everyone comes. <laughs> so that you are there early. And ideally, you do that not too early either, because if you're there 10 years early, that's a very painful a road of in the wilderness. But I'm a big believer of trying to track these big underlying trends in your industry and try to surf on them, and the bigger, the better. And, and we have seen some very big trends happening. I mean, we in the past, we saw the move to PC, the move to the web, the move to mobile, the move to SaaS, to cloud computing. Now we see a move to AI. So there are some very big and darling trends that if you are smart enough to position yourself enough, you can benefit tremendously from it because suddenly... Even in a tight economy, you might have pocket of investments just because companies believe, yeah, I have to be positioned on AI. I have to have something there. Some money will still be there. while it might not be there for, for other products. So I think it's critical. At the same time, again, you want to be there early enough that you are not just there when everyone else is there. But if you are too early and we can pick VR, for instance, we had a recent episode a episode on VR. If you are there too early, like VR in 2010, that's not fun. No? It can be very painful, except if you are Oculus. Beyond that, nobody else really profited from being 
being there in the 2010s in VR, while at the same time you could see on the other side a SaaS moving full speed, mobile moving full speed. So you want to be very careful. Personally, I have experienced mobile before the iPhone. And before the iPhone, if you were a carrier, that's great. If you were Nokia or BlackBerry, that was great. If you were anything else, trying to focus on content, on gaming, on mobile web, that was a nightmare. Nothing was happening. Data plans were simply too expensive. There was no app stores. You had to deal with dozens of carriers across the globe to have a chance to distribute your products. And they would take the lion's share of the revenues. It was a horrible, horrible times. I can tell you, you will not feel a lot of tailwinds in your back if you are in mobile. Again, not being a Nokia, Blackberry or carrier in the early 2000s. But then what a difference when the iPhone came about. Suddenly everyone started to care. There was an ability to distribute apps uh, and, um, easily, cheaply in a central way. Data plants were suddenly much cheaper. So having seen both sides <laughs> of the coin in that industry, in the mobile industry, I can tell you that being there early can be very painful. And at the same time, being already there when stuff started to accelerate was like magic because suddenly everything become easy, at least early on. I mean, easy in the sense of uh, things can accelerate pretty quickly if, if you have the right offer. I agree with everything that you just said. I would just add that this assessment of market is actually generally complex, right? Market definition is something that people spend quite a bit of time on. So really, I'm a big believer that you have to do the top-down exercise of market definition, but also the bottom-up exercise of user flows, what users are being served, how does it work? And from there, because it's a very bottom-up exercise, figure out if actually the market definition is still correct. Because it might not be. It might be that you realize as you're looking at the user flow that it might actually not be the market that you think it's in. That, For example, if it's B2B, the purchaser of your system is not exactly who you thought it would be, and the user might not be who you thought you would be either. I'll give you an example of the consumerized enterprise space. For a long time, everyone's like, oh, this thing about giving people the ability to, for example, scan receipts and send to do expense reports, et cetera, is stupid, right? Because you're selling this as a consumer thing. Actually, no, it's brilliant because if you use it and you use it in your company, at some point, you're going to go back to your head of IT or whoever is on your corporation and say, well, I'm using the system. Can you guys just buy this for the entire company instead of me paying this and then expensing it to the company. And from a sales perspective, it's also much easier because if it's a lead gen, I can go to you and say, well, Mr. Head of IT, you're saying we need to go through a trial. No, we don't. We've been in production with your company for six months, right? We have 10 users on your company that they're paying out of pocket for the service. And that's how companies like Expensify and a lot of other playbooks that we're seeing today around consumerized enterprise, Superhuman, Expensify, that's how the playbook was created. And partially was by accident. It wasn't someone that sat down and had a brilliant idea. Later on, they figured out the brilliant idea. But initially, it was this notion. They started realizing these people are bringing these services onto the company in live production. So the easier we make it for them to integrate with the existing systems in their company out of the box, the better for us. And that's how some of these guys have done so well. Yes, absolutely. Maybe to talk about mission statement, vision statement... I think that's always a useful exercise. Some people do it for, right from the start, some wait a bit more. And to clarify, so what is a mission statement? So a mission statement is trying to describe, typically in a single sentence, uh, the purpose of your company's existence. It's talking about your business intention, 
It's uh, hopefully quite clear-cut for vendors, customers, investors, where a vision statement will be more about what is your long-term view of the world and how you fit into that, what you hope to impact, the, how you hope to impact the world. And I think there is some value to start to think carefully early on about this because that lets you talk and sell and explain what you are going on to, to others. And I like that duality between mission and vision because the mission is more practical, more short-term, typically, and the vision typically would be more long-term and share some perspective about your, your true long-term goal. Exactly. And these things need to be adapted in time. Right? It's very rare that you have a very amazing... Clear, clear vision day one, and somehow that doesn't change. It's also very clear that you might define the mission of your company day one, and it doesn't change. So things, things change. I've seen a very few examples where they don't. But have a little bit of the, rather than going to the distinction, the, the strategy's distinction on what is mission, vision, strategic objectives, and all that nomenclature, I would say, have a clear big picture is what I would call. What is the big picture? If this goes wildly successful, what are you trying to build? This is very important, not just because of pitching and trying to get people to give you their money, be it VCs or angels or whatever, but it's very important because it allows you to calibrate what the core objectives are and the core values of what you're going to develop. We'll talk about values in our next episode, but it will allow you to figure out how does that evolve? How do I make this team evolve? What sort of value system do I want to create? What sort of culture do I want to create in the end for this? And if you don't have that final post, this is where I would like to get to, it will be very difficult because you're just doing a lot of stuff at the same time, very tactically. You can't see the end picture or you don't have a vision on end picture. It will be very difficult to achieve it. So I do think it's important to have these discussions early on. The broader, big discussions on what does this become? What options would we have if it scales really well, but also if it doesn't scale? If it doesn't scale, what would we think we can do? I don't think you should have these discussions all the time. It's like in some ways, then you're never really executing. You're always thinking. But you should do it on a regular basis. Maybe it's every six months, maybe it's every year, maybe it's when something really worked poorly, a launch of a product or a launch of an app or something, and that triggers that discussion. But you should have those discussions on a regular basis. Totally makes sense. Maybe we can focus on uh, three key things. When you have a business, you want to be clear about your product, your market, your team. Three key area of focus early on. Let's talk about modes, distinctiveness, What's your take, Nuno, on this? My perspective is that I always try to think about what can you build that is unique and that is not easily copied by others. Can you come up with this on day zero? It's tricky in many cases. It, it might be just engaging in it, just actually starting to develop a product, going through an MVP, you start having some inklings of what might be very different from what exists in the market out there. That said, having that always in the top of your head or top of your mind is essential. If you can't articulate what is unique about your company or your products or your services, it will be very, very difficult for anyone to understand it. Investors in your company, potential customers or users of your company. So if you can't articulate it yourself, how will others perceive it? And for me, that's pretty much why moats matter so much. It's not just we venture capitalists like, oh, if you don't have a moat, we don't invest because then doesn't make sense. If you don't have any sources of these things, then why would you invest? It's more than that. It's this notion internally of the founder, CEO of the company, that you understand clearly what you're developing that is very unique in the market. Now, this is not uniqueness for the sake of uniqueness. This is very, very important because moats come under very different forms. This is not unique for the sake of uniqueness. 
A moat could come as far-fetched as user experience could be a moat. The user experience is so clean that people just prefer your product to anyone else in the market. It might be technologically it's not better. It might be the product itself is actually not better at the core of its utility. But just because of user experience, it might win. It might be that people really want to work with you because your customer support and customer success, if you're in the B2B space, is amazing, right? It's sort of top-notch for the space you're in. So when we talk about moat, we're not always talking about product and technology moats, which are the classic moats that people would identify. A product moat being that your product is clearly distinctive and the utility that it supplies to its users, clearly distinctive, clearly different from anything that's out there. It just provides a different type of utility or a much better utility. Or a technology moat where there's pieces of your technology stack that is so significantly different from anything that exists out there that by itself... It constitutes, again, a source of distinctiveness. So again, most people think about modes as product or technology modes, but actually there's all sorts of modes. There's UX, there's customer service, customer support. There might be client modes. There might be clients that they were never going to switch because their process to adopt, for example, a new system is so complex that their ability to just switch out of that company is very, very low. That's a mode. So again, think through that. Be clear on what is unique about what's happening with your company as you're building it. Because anyone that wants to give you money that is half smart will ask you at some point, what's unique about you guys? Why do your clients buy you or pay for your service? Why do your users use you? And if you don't have that answer, chances are you're not going to get a good answer from the other side either, right? Because you're sort of navigating without having any clarity on where you're heading to. Yeah, and it's not easy because sometimes you might trick yourself in having differentiation when you don't really have. Ultimately, it will be proof in the pudding on how you keep users and how users don't leave your product or service. I think obviously a big source of uh, moat is uh, user virality. I mean, if you can make a product that is very viral, that's a big difference. Another one to keep on uh, laying some examples, some companies are very good at dealing with government. Basically, they know how to sell to governments, <laughs> very specific type of buyer. And there is an opportunity there because typically startups are not great at selling to governments. So if you have a focus on that, like few tech companies have been doing, I think some of them managed to be very successful because the competition might not have been so strong as you could think. Even some companies might have been lazy working with government. A great example could be SpaceX, obviously, in terms of being very good at dealing with very few customers, NASA at first, and then growing from there and being there at a pivotal time when NASA was ready to work with startups. The pivotal piece here that is often mistaken is we've been talking about these elements of moat. It's new language, but we've been talking about it for a long time. If you go back to Porter and his work on strategy and the forces... He talks about competitive advantage. Competitive advantage is a moat. It's the same thing because competitive advantage assumes sustainability. It's in the definition of Porter's competitive advantage that it's sustainable for a period of time or until such dramatic market conditions, et cetera, et cetera, would change. So until some of the forces would dramatically change like regulation, market, et cetera. So again, you're looking for a competitive advantage. If you do not have it, you cannot compete. It's sort of the, it's sort of the proof. It is literally in the pudding, as you said. <laughs> it's when people ask you moat and you're like, Wondering what you mean by that. It's like, if you don't understand it, then how are you competing? How do you compete if you don't have a competitive advantage? Now, we know a lot of companies that shouldn't be competing and don't have competitive advantages and all that. Cool. But still, it should be pretty central to the leitmotiv of your company. What defines your company? 
So if you don't think too much about it, well, then it's chances are you're going in the wrong direction. And the proof will be early because you will know if you are winning or not winning in the marketplace. Are you getting new clients? Are you fighting to get a deal? And do you get the deal all the time or some of the time? Uh, why are you losing the deal? And on the medium term, once you have clients, you will see are clients staying? Are they spending more money with you? Or on the contrary, are they leaving? You can start understanding it early and you have to keep trying to learn from it because what might get you the first deal might not get you the second deal. So you have to be very careful. And obviously, when you are dealing with consumers, it might be a bit different on understanding exactly what you miss, but you have different ways to understand why customers are buying or not buying your product. Exactly. So we talked about Moat and what are the sources of instinctiveness, as Bertram mentioned. We normally look at product, market, and team. And the reason why we look at product, market, and team is likely that the sources of moats and distinctiveness or competitive advantage will be coming from there. We've also talked about this in the past. Sometimes when we discuss product, there's an underlying technology that gets linked to it. So it's when we talk products, like product and tech. At the end of the day, market, we've already talked quite a bit about around market definition and what market constitutes. And is this a, a market, a tailwind market or a headwind market? Doing competition analysis, all of that stuff we've talked quite a bit about. On the product side, we've also talked quite a bit about it. Might be that you're a services company. If that's the case, all the same principles apply. The principles of how do you provide distinctive services. If you're a consulting firm, what's unique about your service proposition? Okay. And last but not least, it's team. And team is also a little bit like a product. You're also sort of selling yourselves. So it's always fascinating to me when I see a founder that comes and pitches to me even in very early stages of a company and under pitches. And what I mean by under pitches is they have an amazing experience and they're sort of selling very, very superficially that experience, right? You need to be very good at selling yourself. You need to be very good at selling yourself. Because actually, if you're raising, let's say, money from friends and family because you need that money to get to the next level, whatever, it's very likely you won't have a full launch product. It's very likely that we can't observe that. It's also very likely that the market definition is still emerging, right? You're sort of in a market, but it's still emerging. But the one thing for sure is you exist and you're the founder and CEO of this company. And if you do not know how to sell yourself, chances are you'll have a lot of difficulty selling your company and selling the product in your company to your customers and selling yourself when you go to fundraise, when you need to raise a lot more money and selling yourself to any stakeholders that you interact in the, in the business. So that matters dramatically. That ability for you to pitch yourself, to actually say, this is what's unique about me and what makes me be particularly well-positioned to do this company. If you can't answer that question really, really well, you have a problem. If someone says, okay, you're going to do a company that's going to address deep learning in this specific industry, let's say oil and gas, and you can't articulate why you and your team are better equipped than most out there in the market. As the least common denominator, then you're not going to get the money, right? Not at scale for sure. Because why would I give you that money, right? Why are you the right person to do this, okay? Obviously with traction and as you move along the company and as you go to the next level, there might be things that show up and that might make that more interesting. And so you may, might need not to pitch yourself as much as you would at the beginning. But at the beginning, you need to be very, very articulate. What's your superpower? And it can also, as I mentioned before, be a moat, be a source of distinctiveness. The one-on-one -one person that knows that space, right? That's a pretty significant distinctive aspect about you. I would say it's ABS, always be selling. 
I think when you run a business, you need to attract not just money investors, not just customers, but employees, partners, work resources. So it's a constant. You have to sell who you are because initially as a founder, you are identified with the company. What is your business doing? And so you end up having to keep selling it. And if you are not doing it in a good way, you don't want to do too much where it's not necessary. You have to adapt to your audience, obviously. But you have to be able to do it and to do it well and to do it constantly and I would say relentlessly. So it's definitely a big part of the game if you want to do anything. A good segue of that is who do you need to have on board early on? Well, you need to have on board people that are core constituents of your team that you can afford. (laughs) 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 That you can afford is very important, that you can afford because they're willing to go there for mostly stock, a little bit of pay, or you have enough cash that you've raised for them to come on board that can constitute the kernel of what's going to be that moat or that set of moats for your company. Okay, so if it's really deeply around technology that your moat will subside, then with all due respect, you can't just outsource your entire technology team. That doesn't quite work, right? Because then, you know, obviously you could own it and have invention rights, but if it's not your engineering team, then it's some other engineering team doing it. If, for example, a core characteristic of your moat is the fact that you have very deep subject matter expertise and you do not have it as a founder and CEO, you need to hire for that or bring in a potential co-founder that sort of, again, gets that gap taken care of. So very, very important. It's not to say that you need to have everyone in-house. You don't have the resources to have everyone in-house. You need to pick and choose. You need to pick and choose what is core to your kernel as a company and what is not core. And if that means, for example, you're doing a mobile app and actually you think you can outsource easily a lot of, for example, the front end, because what's distinctive about your mobile app is really the back end, no problem. No problem whatsoever. You can outsource your front end, right? And at some point you'll probably need to bring it in-house when you have the resources to do it. No problem. What doesn't work, and I've seen some companies in the last six months is two or three people, core people, they get handsomely paid because they've raised a little bit of money. They get okay paid or handsomely paid. And then everything is outsourced to some guys in the middle of nowhere somewhere. And no problem with the some guys somewhere in the middle of nowhere, but the quality of what they produce might not be necessarily amazing. If the quality of what they produce is amazing, then the guys that are out there somewhere might at some point decide to do a product that will compete with yours, even though you probably have invention rights and all that stuff. Not unheard of. So again, pick your battles on outsourcing versus what you need to have in-house. It's a key point. I agree with you. I've seen so many founders outsourcing the key part of their business, not running it tight, and ultimately it goes nowhere because they are not able to deliver a product or they are not able to deliver great product, at least what could be defined as great early on, or they don't iterate fast enough. So you need to be very careful about that early part of the game. And if you decide to be in technology, and guess what? You need to have technologists. Uh, you need to have people who understand technology, who live and breathe technology. And you need that early on versus too late in the game. And for sure, there are some functions you cannot have early on simply because the people you will need, you need them for a week, you need them for a very part-time. So you have to find a balance. Not everything is full-time. Usually it means that early on, you might also over-index on generalist people you can touch, different things. You don't want to start just with a deep database expert and (laughs) you have very little need just for that early on. So you need people who can 
touch a bit of everything, that will be probably your initial approach. The first 10, 20 people, people who can do a lot of different things, backend, but even frontend as well. You might want marketer who can do different things from some planning to execution, to emails, to social networks. And are they the best at everything they do? Probably not, but at least they can do a bit of everything and have the right attitude and mentality and focus on stuff that work better. And once you discover stuff that work better, you can invest more in that direction. So I think it's a game of finding the right generalist usually early on, and then moving on to specialist experts, the more you grow the business and the more you professionalize even more the business. But yeah, that outsourcing is a key part of the game. What do you outsource? What you don't outsource? What you build in-house? And when you need more money in order to get financing, that would be obviously a big question. People will try to understand, okay, how is it done? And do I trust these guys when they say they are deep tech companies, but actually everything was outsourced? That's not coming to end well. I will reframe. I think we are probably agreeing. I don't think it's generalist generalists. We're talking about people that have broader set of skills within a specific domain. So for example, that's why we saw full stack engineers Everyone wants a full-stack engineers because a full-stack engineer, by definition, can do front-end, back-end, and a bunch of other things, right? <laughs> so, so we're not saying generalist end is in the guy can do engineering and can do sales, right? It's like, that's maybe... A little, we're talking about sort of broader set of skills within a domain. A function, within a function, yeah. Within a function, okay. Just to, just to make that, that clarification there. Yes. I would just say one minor point. There are functions that normally come later in the history of companies. I always get a little bit startled when I see, for example, people hiring HR very early. Sometimes there might be good reasons for it, but I always get a bit startled. I'm like, that's surprising. Why are you hiring HR people so early? First 10 employees, you have an HR person or a recruitment person and no problem with HR people. I think they're amazing. They create a ton of value, but it's like, seems very early, right? The same with marketing in some areas of SaaS, right? You have marketing. At some point, you might have more marketing and sales. I also don't understand that. Unless your product-led growth motion is clean and really works well at scale, it sort of surprises me a bit, right, as well. So, so I think there's some functions that you'll see surprises. People will be like, why do you have this? And, and again, there, if there's an elephant in the room that you perceive that people that are talking to you, et cetera, perceive that there's something strange about Explain why that person is the right person for that. And it might be what Bertrand was just saying, that person is a little bit broader in terms of their skill sets and therefore fits that stage of the company a lot better. Maybe just to add to your point, that's always something that surprised me when early on, let's say less than 50 uh, people, you see some companies who present themselves as tech companies, but they have way, way more sales and marketing people than engineers, for instance. Like, what? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Below 50 people and you have way more in sales and marketing than people developing the product. I think it's typically a mistake. I've seen very few exceptions. Usually it ends up being uh, products that are barely products, that are barely differentiated. And I would say maybe even service companies that are hiding as product companies. But ultimately you keep opening more to see what's going on inside and you discover a bunch of professional services people, for instance. And that's a clear sign that it's product issues. It's very tough to go back. I've seen some companies being smart about trying to use professional services to understand more their clients, to understand more what to automate. But typically, it's a culture very hard to change. If you are really a product company, you want to be very careful from the get-go to keep putting your resource to improve the product directly itself versus adding people to hide the issues or correct the issues all the time. 
Exactly. Maybe this leads us to our last topic, which is funding. All of this needs to be funded. <laughs> there needs to be money to pay for resources, right? You need to use cloud infrastructure. Well, you need money for that. So one of the typical conversations is around self-financing, bootstrapping versus VC financing or third-party financing. My advice is very simple. It's whatever money you can raise with the least possible strings attached. So if you need capital to proceed, you should raise it. And if someone is willing to give you that money with the least possible amount of strings attached, you should take it. Now, post the simplistic approach to something that's actually naturally complex, bootstrapping can work really well. I think bootstrapping works really well until you have a very clear view of what product you want to develop etc. To be honest, the cost of development these days is so low that it might even lead you through sort of an early version of the MVP. Given the bull days that we had in the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of founders now coming to the market like, oh, I want to go and do this company unless I can find funding to get to MVP. I'm like, why? I mean, if you can put in 25K and you get it to you through MVP, which in some cases it might, 25K might get you through an MVP. Why wouldn't you do it yourself? Why wouldn't you de-risk that part to investors and therefore also get less diluted once you start getting funding from investors? So there's definitely a lot of discussion around, you know, when should I go and raise? How much money should I raise, et cetera? I mean, if you can raise a bunch of money with a really nice valuation that's very non-dilutive to everyone involved in the company, the founders in particular, when you start, go ahead. I mean, that's great. As we've discussed also before, you're now carrying a larger valuation than you're worth. So you also have to be careful about that. But right-sizing rounds is difficult. You can do the bottom-up exercise of, okay, this is the cost I'm going to incur, all of that. That gives you already sort of a view of what's the minimum you should absolutely raise at a certain point in time. But very, very honestly, this is all deeply connected to where you want to get in terms of your go-to-market. So it's like, it's okay, where do I want to get with my product? And therefore, where would I want to get with my product in a market? which is the go-to-market. And where does 500K take you? Where does 250K take you? Where does $500 million take you if you're raising a huge series, whatever, EFG or whatever? So again, having that clarity on what does that cash give you? How does it support your budget? For me, it's pretty structural planning. It's pretty structural strategic planning. It's, I know it's difficult when you're starting a company to figure out what your top line is going to look like. No clue. But you should have a very clear view on what your bottom line looks like, in particular, your expense line looks like, and what do you need from it, the ability to deliver. So that would be my advice to founders at this stage. Really spend the time doing even some detailed budgeting on your expenses and what you need the money for. And take into account plan Bs and plan Cs and think a little bit through plan A of creating top line and where should you create revenue and how. But just nail that cost model first and foremost. What I've seen as a clear tell that there is something wrong is to raise a shitload of money, millions of dollars, when you don't even have a product, you just have a business plan. I think it's bad practice. I'm not sure I've ever seen any success stories on that model. Maybe you have seen, you know, I don't know. But I think that's something to be quite careful. Sometimes it might work, but I've rarely seen that. So I think it's quite critical to make sure that you build step-by-step step your valuation, the amount you raised. There is not a, such a big disconnect between the two. There have been many known stories of companies where because the founder was very famous, he got 10, 20, 30 million all at once. No product, no nothing, actually. And ultimately, all the money was wasted. And I feel it's pretty sad when you work like this. And sometimes there might be pressure. Oh, this is a very hot entrepreneur, very hot industry. But I think it's wrong for everyone involved, honestly. I don't see what's worse than putting dozens of millions into something that doesn't deliver anything. 
right-size it, but right-size it for the moment of time that you're in. Right-sizing two or three years back would have probably, we would have said probably 18 months runway. Right-sizing it for now might be 24 to 30 months runway. So if you can raise that much amount of money, then you should. But I agreed with you, absolutely. You shouldn't over-raise. And then in some cases, sometimes it happens where companies do a hard pivot, but it's a hard pivot to nothing very clear, right? So it's like, I am pivoting away from my business. And what's your next business? I don't know. I'm like, well, if you don't know, how about you send us the money back until you do know? <laughs> I agree with that. I think that, yeah, I would be quite shocked to hear that. I think if there is a clear plan and if the founder and the team are very strongly believer in it, I think they should probably have the opportunity to do that change. At the same time, you could argue potentially could be the time to say, hey, by the way, we, we are going to do that, but I'm ready to send back the money if investors are not believing enough into the new plan. That would be a clean approach. But I would say at day zero, your financing would be typically from your own money, friends and family money. Yes, you want to bring enough money on the table so you have a good chance to achieve some milestone. Huh? That's always a question. And you have to be realistic about your milestones and add some buffer so that you know what could be next. And obviously, yeah, friends and family, you might want to be careful about how you are dealing with them. I'm a big believer to try also to use standardized agreements. If you take the Y Combinator agreement, for instance, that helps everyone not to abuse the other party in some ways, but leverage some existing market standards contracts. We love the NVCA template for Series A. We use it actually starting on Series C, which sometimes pisses off our founders early on, but then they realize the value of that. Because once they've done it with NVCA Series A docs, they, any other round that comes after sort of either is within that or a custom thing. So you know if it's out. I fully agree with that. This concludes our episode 47, our first of two episodes on day zero as a founder. What should I do? Thank you, Nuno. Thank you, Bertrand. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. As a disclaimer, these are our own opinions. We're not representing the views of any company. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe, give us five stars, or leave a review on Apple Podcast app or your favorite app, which will help other people to discover Tech Decipher. Thank you for listening. See you next time.